0: Good morning. Good morning. So the message is, as you know, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. And Holly and I are co-teaching today, and that means that she's doing most of the work. So I'm just going to sit here.
1: You are. Okay. No, I'm not. <laughs>
0: I put, I got some stuff together.
1: Okay, good. Um, so today, and and actually, I prepared this talk before last night, but the talk is called Baseball, Belief, and Jesus. Uh, <laughs> too bad Jesus' name wasn't Bartholomew, because that would be some great alliteration. <laughs> but I, I could write an entire talk and just go over last night's game. and.
0: I don't think that... It much. was an
1: entire hero's journey. I mean, it, it really, it was like despair and celebration, and I mean, it was a lot. Um, and a, a friend of mine texted me this morning who used to play, and he said, his, he's going golfing, and he said his friend's top five gratitude lists today was Altuve, 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 Altuve. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought that was cute. Anyways, uh, for starters, I hope that at the end of this talk you'll at least love baseball a little bit more. I think you might learn how to throw a knuckle curve ball.
0: How about loving Jesus more?
1: <laughs> well, that that I think Jesus loved baseball. He loves Altuve. <laughs> you know Jesus is the best baseball player in the world. I mean, he gets a lot of. Here, we'll just show his baseball card.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Where did you get that?
1: I I texted God and I said, could I borrow your son's <laughs> baseball card? I know a guy who knows a guy. Oh, yeah. So we know what October means. It's um, exciting if you're a baseball fan. And for us, it's going to be particularly exciting starting on Tuesday. We're in the World Series, in case you didn't know. I was there last night, so my voice is a little croaky, and I've got, like, circles under my eyes, but I'm in a great mood. (laughs) And I have a lifelong love affair with baseball. I I played my whole life. I played quite competitively and listened to Milo Hamilton in the background of my childhood. Did you know he was
0: a member of this church?
1: Milo Hamilton?
0: Absolutely. Too
1: bad. I didn't meet him. Yeah. 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 I mean, his voice was like the canticle to our evenings. We didn't have cable, so we listened to baseball on the radio, and that's, I and mean, that's who's saying me to sleep, kind of. So I could go on and on about how much I love baseball, <laughs> but I will get to a point at some point today. I could go on and on about what it feels like to fly through the air and make a diving catch or get the game-saving double and score the runs that take us to the next level. And really, though, being at a game for me is what I wish church was like. We think about it this way. It's you mean we
0: should sell beer and hot dogs? Totally.
1: But already, we got bad wine and wafers. Beer and hot dog, bad wine and wafers. No, Which we, you don't, gonna we don't have for? wine at all. <laughs> so, I mean, really. <laughs> we're just going to do some stand-up here today. Let's no. throw these out. Throw our notes out. <laughs> Anyways, the point being, you know, we're there with 43,000 other people. Maybe we know five of them. We're, we, no one cares what race you are. No one cares how much money you make. No one cares what religion you are. No one cares who you voted for. We're just centered around this. I mean, literally, the object of this ball is the center of our attention, the pattern of this ball. So there's lots of problems with professional sports, for sure. I mean, we could get, go deep into that. But we're going to entertain this metaphor for a minute. Okay. okay. When you're at the game, there is a collective energy. And no one seems to care about you know, any of that other life stuff. It's charismatic. We leap up in the air and we wave our hands. <laughs> Sometimes we talk in tongues. We clutch our hands to our, <laughs> our mouths. We you know, grab our throats. It, there's a lot. We sing. We moan. We cry. We laugh. We sing hymns. Jose, 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 right? (laughs) We also sing the canticle of all canticles, take me out to the ball game, right? No one wants to sing with me. All right, I'll do it. Um,
0: (laughs) I never understood why you sing that song at the baseball game when you're already there.
1: We're just celebrating the fact that we're there. Okay. (laughs) So we can all follow along with these songs. No one's left out. We hear the gospel according to Garrett Cole, right? Life throws you curveballs, but you're going to get another chance at that. During communion, we're at the communion part. We drink bad beer and hot dogs. (laughs) There's just a collective we at a game. This is is a a feeling of we-ness. And one meaning of the word church is an assembly of believers. And I think baseball can make believers out of us.
0: Okay. So. Are you
1: convinced yet?
0: <laughs> I'm also oh, trying
1: to get this guy to like baseball. <laughs> I, I don't dislike Sabrina, baseball, but no. you know,
0: I, I made a confession in yeah. here a few weeks ago that that um, I, I I I claim to be a pacifist or a nonviolent person and to teach nonviolence, and I love I love football. I love professional football. And this is modern day gladiatorial combat, right? So when Holly told me that what she wanted to do today was to talk about baseball, beliefs, and Jesus, the first thing I thought about was this guy. (laughs) I'm serious. You know his piece. I'm going to read it to you. I, and I encourage you really to go online and, and to listen to George Carlin compare football and baseball. Yeah. So some of you know it. Some of you don't know it. But I, I want to read it. This is, these are Carlin's words. Baseball is different from any other sport. Mm-hmm. Very different. For instance, in most sports, you score points or goals. In baseball, you score runs. In most sports, the ball or object is put into play by the offensive team. In baseball, the defensive team puts the ball into play, and only the defense is allowed to touch the ball. In fact, in baseball, if an offensive player touches the ball intentionally, he's out. Sometimes unintentionally, he's out. Also, in football, basketball, soccer, volleyball, and all sports played with a ball, you score with the ball. And in baseball, the ball prevents you from scoring. In most sports, the team is run by a coach. In baseball, the team is run by a manager. And only in baseball does the manager or coach wear the same clothing the players do. (laughs) If you've ever seen John Madden in his Oakland Raiders uniform, you'd know the reason for this custom. (laughs) Now, I've mentioned football. Baseball and football are the two most popular spectator sports in the country, and as such, it seems, they ought to be able to tell us something about ourselves and our values. I enjoy comparing baseball and football. Baseball is a 19th century pastoral game. Football is a 20th century technological struggle. Baseball is played on a diamond in a park, the baseball park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium, sometimes called Soldier Field or War Memorial Stadium. (laughs) Baseball begins in the spring, the season of new life. Football begins in the fall when everything is dying. (laughs) In football, you wear a helmet. In baseball, you wear a cap. Football is concerned with downs. What down is it? Baseball is concerned with ups. Who's up next? (laughs) In football, you receive a penalty. In baseball, you make an error. In football, a specialist comes in to kick. In baseball, the specialist comes in to relieve somebody. (laughs) Football has hitting, clipping, spearing, piling on, personal fouls, late hitting, and unnecessary roughness. Baseball has to sacrifice. Football is played in any kind of weather, rain, snow, sleet, hail, fog, and baseball. If it rains, we don't go out. (laughs) Baseball has the seventh inning stretch. Football has the two-minute warning. (laughs) Baseball has no time limit. We don't know when it's going to end. Might have extra innings. Football is rigidly timed, and it will end even if we got to go to sudden death. In baseball, during the game in the stands, there's a kind of picnic feeling. Emotions may run high or low, but there's not too much unpleasantness. In football, during the game in the stands, you can be sure that at least 27 times you're capable of taking the life of a fellow human being. (laughs) And finally, the objectives of the two games are completely different. In football, the object is for the quarterback, also known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun with short bullet passes and long bombs. He marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack that punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. (laughs) And to be safe. I hope I'm safe at home. That's George Carlin. Was good. Yeah, he's good, he's yeah. good. I miss him.
1: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're gonna have a hard time reining us in today. <laughs> One of the reasons I also love going to games is just it's just joyful, and I love engaging with that sense of play. The play actually predates ritual, language, and religion, in both primate and human species. So we learned to play before we created this, before we created the ritual. Just the other night, I promised a beer to some guy I'd met in, like, the 10th inning. And we, you know, we're in a full embrace after 11 innings of extended play. It was one in the morning, and I'll never see him again. Did Josh know about this? Josh, I hugged a stranger. (laughs) He's all right with it. All right, okay. Yeah. Um, It wasn't romantic. It was just celebratory. So, you know, in this... Game, two people who are complete strangers can hug like that and feel a similar sense of emotion, a similar bond. Right there, that's the Holy Spirit, right? And just to put it in cosmological terms, since this is my, my language, the game can erupt from calm to chaos, from calm to chaos in any given moment. It's a dance of these two, just like the natural world. And from this, dynamic creativity emerges from these sort of disturbances in equilibrium. Baseball is about constant disturbances in equilibrium. I think there's also a deeper metaphor that relates baseball to spirituality, and this is where we get to the relationship between contemplation and action. I want to go back for a second to to the interplay between the ball and the players. Inherent in this ball, is explosive action. Immense beauty comes from the trajectory of this ball and creativity of the players. Have you ever seen a really perfect knuckleball thrown? I mean, if you've watched Garrett Cole, you've seen it. You can't see it, but you can see it up on the screen, how you hold a knuckleball. Where you hold your finger, whether it's on the seams, on the whites, across the seams, is is gonna affect the movement of the ball, right? So there's a lot, I mean, in that one pitch, there's four ways you can throw it. But unless I put the ball in motion, like Garrett Cole, you won't really know it. His knuckle curve absolutely mystifies. And yes, Josh, that is Albert Pujols striking out on Garrett <laughs> Cole's <laughs> Get knuckle curve.
0: Um, can I play that again?
1: Yeah. It, it just keeps going, I think. It should just keep going. You're...
0: Does it play over and over? So
1: Albert Pujols is Arguably one of the best batters in all of the history of the major leagues, Josh Hudley. And Garrett Cole.
0: Are you all having a fight?
1: I did, yeah, I mean, we are right now. Okay. <laughs> He's come around. He likes the Astros now. Um, wow. But in the, you know, so this is Garrett Cole. Actually, when Josh and I first got married, this is not in my notes, but We went, Bill married us and we went to meet with Bill on the pre-marriage and he told us, "I don't really do premarital counseling because you're going to need it after." Um, <laughs> and he said, I you did. He said, he said have, you, "Have you all ever had a fight?" And we looked at each other and we were like, "We fight about baseball." And that, at the time was about the worst argument we had had, which was pretty playful. Um, we've had other arguments since, but we still love each other. <laughs> Anyways, um, the ball needs to be acted upon. And it requires our action, or our human action, to be in motion. The ball, in many senses, to me, is like sacred mystery. It wants to move through us, and it wants us to be active participants in its movement, in its creative unfolding. Without this interplay, the energy remains completely stagnant. Return. It is? Mm-hmm. <laughs> OK.
0: So I want to put a quote up and ask you if you know who said this. Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant an apple tree. Is that not up there? Now this this quote is variously attributed, uh, but the the first time I heard it was in a. Uh, church history class in uh, graduate school and it is attributed to this guy, Martin Luther. It's also been attributed to, to other people. Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. So the background against which I'm trying to um, conceive of and communicate spiritual truth or teachings <laughs> is in a context where it seems to me that the world is going to pieces in many ways, in ways that were that have been different. I know that, that people can look back and find things not right with the world all the way back to the beginning. But I'm talking about the social fabric of our country right now. It seems as fragile as it seems since the 60s to me. And so uh, how do we get the capacity to have the calm and the hope in this context of going ahead and planting the trees that we need to plant, no matter what? So I think our spiritual, religious work has got to hold on to, to both sides of the, this, this statement. And the metaphor that I've thought about uh, is, um, what would you do if you woke up and discovered that your house was on fire? Or what would you do if you woke up and discovered that your neighbor's house was on fire? Would you go to your neighbor's house and say, Can I adjust your pillow for you (laughs) so you can sleep more comfortably? Hmm. Or do you scream and yell and say, get the hell out? What do you do in that particular circumstance? And um, I'll make this very personal. After I was diagnosed with coronary artery disease, and and some surgeon had driven a Sherman tank into my chest to address that issue, I asked my cardiologist if there was a cure for the disease that I had been diagnosed with, and he said no. And he was Buddhist, and he said, you know what Buddha said? To have a body is to live in a house that is on fire cheery thought (laughs) so we hope to be able to deal with that into old age and and we hope for there to be people around us who can handle pain management and who can help us in the crossing over kind of process unless you get murdered like that cardiologist of mine did and Mm -hmm. you just never know Mm -hmm. what's what's going to happen So you can't run out of the burning house that we're in unless you move to New Zealand, which some people claim they're going to do. But unless, unless, um, and you can, you can, and I really encourage people to do whatever is necessary to push the inevitable tide that's coming back. Uh, But it's it's coming for everyone. Um, And uh, take for example. organized religion it's estimated right now that between 6,000 and 10,000 churches a year close their doors in the united states religious i mean the the statistics are hard to get because no religious organization wants to admit defeat or failure but that's 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 what is happening and and a factor that is affecting both protestant and roman catholic but more protestant than catholics in this country is the incredible fragmentation that we go through as as religious groups it is almost inevitable that in the coming calendar year the united methodist church will no longer be united right so another another piece of fragmentation uh, about that so my My question is, how is the urgency, the urgency of what Jesus, in line with the Jewish prophetic tradition, how is that urgency communicated without someone thinking that they're being judged or criticized? Because nobody comes to church hoping to feel bad when they leave, although I did grow up in a tradition where that was part of it. Um, we had these revivals twice a year where you went to church to get a drubbing Mm. and to be told how no good you were and you needed to repent or you were going to hell. Even if you'd already done everything they had told you to do before, you probably need to do it again because you couldn't be too sure. (laughs) I grew up in that that kind of tradition. And even though I knew that the man who was doing the service knew that everybody in that small church had already accepted Jesus as their personal Savior, that didn't stop. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're going to sing just one more verse that's just as I am. And, you know, we high school kids would punch each other in the shoulder. You go down. I went down last time.
1: <laughs> that's funny.
0: Let's get this over with, I wanna to go to the Dairy Queen. I
1: was, I, I was in a church in Malawi, a Southern Baptist preacher opened a church in Malawi. Yeah. And um, it's in Africa, and the, the, the preacher would not let people leave until someone got the Holy Spirit. You better believe someone threw themselves on the floor and was like, "All right, can we go now, please?" So
0: you you will you will see this uh, next Sunday this particular slide because I'm I'm wanting to know and I'd like you to join me in this. We can talk about this next week around the table if you like. Um, I want to know what what it means for us to practice spiritual literacy to reclaim spiritual literacy. And what it means to reclaim Jesus in uh, our time, if we're, we're not going to be embarrassed by what evangelical Christians do, but we are going to say what does it mean to know and to follow Jesus in this particular time. And what I invite you to do, not now, because we got other things we want to talk to you about, is to go to this website, ReclaimingJesus.org. This is put out by the Jim Wallace Sojourners Organization. Jim Wallace is an evangelical Christian who is radically engaged in social justice. And um, Sojourners, if you don't know what it is, you can Google them too. Sojourners.net is the way that you get them on the, the net. And he and a number of other religious leaders about two years ago came out with this manifesto called Reclaiming Jesus. And it's signed by a number of, as, as I said, religious people. Richard Rohr signed it. Uh, another number of other people signed it. So I, I want to encourage you to go read it and see what your responses are. Because I want to be talking some about it in light of of the teachings of Jesus. Edward Harris sent me something. Can you hand me that laser pointer? Edward Harris sent me something um, a couple weeks ago that's stunning. And I want to show it to you. Uh, and and uh, before, I, it's going to be an active graphic. It's going to last about two minutes. We'll get out of your way. But I want you to see that in 1945, this line up here represented the uh, population strength percentage-wise of Roman Catholics. And the next line is Hindu, which is the oldest religion that we have. Under that are Christian Protestants, Eastern Orthodox, uh, I think this is Shinto. Where it is the Buddhist tradition that the Dalai Lama is in? Is this one right here? And the Islam Sunni tradition, religious tradition is right here. So keep your eye on this bar, and on this bar. Roman Catholic is here. Christian Protestant is here, and. Uh, Sunni Hindu, I mean, uh, Islam is right there, and and we we can talk about that. This will last about two minutes, so you can see it. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the summary that goes out, so that you I think can. It comes up right there. Um, so, what's the relevance of this? This is, um, I've seen a statistic recently in, in within the next decade. Um, People who identify as Caucasian will no longer be in the majority in this country. We are uh, people who identify as Protestant Christian are no longer in the majority anywhere. And yet, people who identify as white, Caucasian, Christian, Protestant make the rules. Mm-hmm. And people who feel like they might be disenfranchised from that process might have something to say about that. Mm -hmm. That's the context in which we live, the kind of explosive kind of sense. So there is this sense of urgency that um, is in the the Christian, in the Jewish prophetic tradition uh, that Jesus was part of. Casey, thank you so very much for doing that. And and, and the prophets were not fortune tellers. They didn't predict the future except to say that if you like to camp and you pitch your tent in the middle of Interstate 45, you're likely going to get run over. Now, if we as a culture are doing things that alienate people and that end up being also not in our own best interest, Is there a place in the in in our religious structures where we can communicate that without having people slam the door to their heads and their hearts on hearing this? I have um, I got this somewhere else in the slide, so I'll bring it up later. Um, that's a, that's a real question for a spiritual teacher. There's a difference between being. A, this is what I was taught in seminary. There's a difference between being a prophet and a chaplain. A prophet can come in and say what needs to be said and then get out of town. <laughs> but a chaplain has to live with the people. And, and, and to say, I didn't say what the prophet said, but let's make sense of it in some way. That's a delicate balancing act uh, to, to, to follow, but it's one that I think that, that we have to do. So if, you're, if your house is burning down, if somebody thinks it is, uh, what do you do? I mean, I, I've said repeatedly in here. I don't want to alienate anybody. I don't want to create, contribute to divisiveness. I want to, for us to. Did you read Richard Rohr this morning? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't it good? About the contemplative. He said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be talking about issues that a lot of people do this too. Mm-hmm. But just take a contemplative stance about it, and and try to learn. But I don't want to irritate, upset people, but um, I, want, I do want us to reclaim Jesus. What does it mean for us to be be spiritually literate? Jesus took sides. He said some things that really, really upset people. And my, my stance is that the church that blesses the status quo, if the status quo is a house that's burning, is not the church of Jesus.
1: Mm-hmm think that one of the things that I ask a lot is how, do, how can the church remain relevant in a time when we need to be grappling, when we need to be grappling with issues of divisiveness and issues of, of deep introspection too. And frankly, if we stay satisfied with the status quo, if we don't change, then we're missing the key metaphor of the Christ story, which is transformation, Right? There's a theory that the very basic elements of life are compelled to commune and create. We're part of that, we're part of that compulsion. We're always changing and creating. I love this question from poet Mary Oliver at the bottom of this poem is, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Hmm. I wanna pitch an idea about God or sacred mystery, however we want to name it. I'm coming to think of that as more of a process of deepening interconnectedness, rather than as of a static thing. So not, we talk about this a lot, it's not out there, but it's it's an ever evolving process. It's not even, I don't think, a preeminent thing. I think sacred mystery craves interaction to keep evolving. It, It couldn't have remained a pinprick. It couldn't have remained those first photon waves. It had to keep changing and evolving and creating. It longed for that. It longed for diversity and creativity. Thomas Berry said, the universe is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. The key word to me here is communion. in in baseball, to bring it back, the communion between the ball and the players gives it life. You add in the fan base, and that triumvirate is its own kind of holy, right? I think the same is true about spirituality. If we don't connect our beliefs with action, if we don't pick up the ball, then how will we reveal the best of ourselves? In baseball, the ball, this ball possesses all the potential for transcendence, right? It, it, it sails for 429 feet, the distance of Jordan Alvarez's record-setting home run. It, I knew that. Yeah, I know you did, yeah, you gave me that stat. Uh, Josh James, reliever for the Astros, throws it in at 101 miles per hour sometime. It curves, and it bends, and it produces these unimaginable feats. Did anyone see Michael Brantley's double play last night? Unbelievable. That, this doesn't happen without the ball. It doesn't happen if the ball never moves, if no one ever picks it up, right? I can't just sit here and cheer at the ball and pray over it and will it to move. I, it, it's, it's just not going to work, right? It needs to be acted upon. It needs us, and we need the ball. It's a mutual interdependence. I mean, keep in mind, I'm using the ball as sort of my metaphor for sacred mystery. It seems really important to me to, that the question to ask ourselves is, what do we believe about this ball? What do we believe about sacred mystery? So much of what happens is immediately out of our control once this ball is let go of, right? Einstein was known to have said that the most important question facing humanity is, is the universe a friendly place? If we say we believe in this friendliness, if we say we believe in things like equity, justice, compassion, the teachings of Jesus, but we don't do anything about them, then none of these things come into being. It's the equivalence of 18 suited-up players going out on the field and just standing around and looking at the ball and just waiting for it to move. That would be a very boring game. Right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So aligning our beliefs about our friendly universe with our friendly actions requires intention, and it requires practice. This is, I think, an equal pursuit of science and spirituality, of cosmology and mysticism. It's imagining a unified theory of everything. Cosmologists have been after that for a long time. Both branches of spirituality and science operate under the premise that every aspect of existence, living and non-living, is connected. We're made up of molecules that exist in stars that were part of dinosaurs, that became human. The molecules of our body will eventually become something else once we die. While there are many ways that we have mystical experiences, I think that the underlying thread of mysticism is, is a deep sense of belonging and interconnectedness. That, that seems to be what is reported when people are in transcendent states. But when we're practicing with a mind towards friendliness, toward inclusivity, we begin to understand that everything that we do matters. We also begin to see the ways in which we have acted in opposition or completely blind to that interconnectedness, if we're willing to go deep. So much of what keeps us from picking up the ball is fear. Will I be good enough? Will they like me? Do I even matter? What will others think of me? What do I think of them? I think this is such a primal instinct of protection, but acting out of fear very rarely serves us. But when we move through the fear when we just try to throw the ball, I think that's when the magic happens. A great pitcher like Garrett Cole, he he's like, he probably sleeps with this thing. And you know, he understands that, you know who I want to be Cy Young winner, I think, right now. Um, <laughs> but he understands that it has to move through him and he has to move through it. I mean, you just watch him pitch one game and you see that magic. The, the legendary Duke basketball coach, Coach K, anyone college basketball fans, he, he is said that he spent weeks with his team just envisioning, just having them close their eyes and envision the plays, and then they would practice the plays without the ball. So they practice their movements, they practice their body movements, they practice engaging with one another, and then they pick up the ball. And what college team has won more championships? Am I right, Josh, than Duke? I mean, they're pretty much number one. Yeah, okay, one of them. Sorry, he knows more about stats than I do, but they're they're legendary. They're very good. But in part of that practice is this practice of imagination taking shape, belief becoming action, right? Yeah. So uh,
0: there, uh, there was a, a study done at um, I think it's University of Miami Psychology Department, where they got a large group of people like this who were not. Basketball players, and had them practice. Uh, that had them shoot free throws. That's a very difficult phrase for me to say. Free throws. Free throws? Yeah. <laughs> and they recorded their ability to do this, how good they were, and then they divided that group into three groups, and they put one with a basketball coach, and they practiced a certain number of minutes twice a day, shooting th- free throws free throws the other third of the group practiced archery and the other third of the group only worked with a person who was skilled in active imagination and had them do active imagination imagining that they were shooting these basketball Mm -hmm. have you heard the study no I
1: haven't
0: and the ones who took the archery when they retested them they were about the same The ones that had practiced every day, twice a day, their their ability to make basket free shots had increased over twenty five percent. The ones who didn't do anything but just imagine their ability increased twenty four percent. Have I ever mentioned a, a daily practice to you all? Is it, it that cool kind setup. of thing where you imagine loving kindness and compassion going out to uh, other people will yeah. eventually maybe lead you in that More Moral
1: path. of the story, imagine yeah. yourself pitching great knuckle curveballs, and yeah. you too could be Garrett cool. yeah. Um <laughs> So I personally want to imagine a world where our beliefs about the sacred raise us to new and better ways of being so that when the, the, the ball brings out the best in us, it's this collective participation to me that makes the game exciting. If one of the outfielders in, on the Astros decided to sit down in the sixth inning and just simply stopped, it would change, it would alter the entire game. It would alter the energy around the game. People like Thomas Merton speak of the importance of connecting contemplation and action. Richard Rohr's entire ministry is named Contemplation and Action. Thich Nhat Hanh calls it engaged Buddhism. Today, we often hear the word spiritual activism. Jesus said, although maybe not in these words, practice what you preach. Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. Einstein said, everything is energy, and that's all there is to it. Match the frequency of the reality you want, and you cannot help but get that reality. It can be no other way. This is not philosophy. This is physics. Uh, My professor, Brian Swim's greatest mentor was Thomas Berry, who was a a priest and archaeologist. And Berry said to have told him once that set him on his life's work of connecting kind of cosmology with, with story. You scientists have the stupendous story of the universe. But so long as you persist in understanding it solely from a quantitative mode, you fail to appreciate its significance. You fail to hear its music. That's what the spiritual traditions can provide. Tell the story, but tell it with a feel for its music. I love that the bells are happening as we're saying that. (laughs) So you see, this is both a spiritual and a scientific quest. Meaningful participation is the combination of belief and practice. We've got to pick up the ball to be in the game, to engage our imaginations and challenge our beliefs, to inform our behaviors. I've heard it said that one of the highest forms of spiritual practice is actually being in love with the world, so loving the world enough to serve it, to be part of it, to commune with it. Author and systems thinker, a guy named Jeremy Lent, said, we're not here defending nature, we are nature defending itself. Disconnecting from this reality is incomplete spirituality. Belief and practice are incomplete without our participation and you know again i just keep bringing this back imagine baseball without the ball it is an absolute truth that when we that connection is at the basis of existence even on a molecular level we need to ask ourselves i think with the utmost seriousness do our behaviors support or deny connection do they support or deny the friendliness at the heart of the universe of course it's challenging when our beliefs differ i suspect we all of us in this room will never agree on one absolute truth. But I think I heard a wise man once say, <laughs> I know, he's, I think he's hiding. It. Oh, gotcha. um, we can start, if, you said something once, like if we can imagine the greatest person we know and try to emulate that, we, we ooch that much closer to God. And, mm-hmm. and yet Jesus is that much better than that, mm-hmm. right? So I want to offer a story. I'm on the board of the Justice for Our Neighbors who came during the summer to speak to us about immigration and the work they're doing. Will Reed is the president of the board and we were on a call the other day and he told this story that he witnessed firsthand. A few weeks ago, he visited a detention center just south of Intercontinental Airport. He was there to assess the need and see if JFON could help any of the detainees. And in one of the holding cells was a young father just weeping. He came to the front of his cell and he pleaded, donde están mis niños, donde están, where are my children, where are they? So he came with both of his kids, both under five, surrendered himself and his sons as he was supposed to at the border to seek asylum nine months ago and he hasn't seen his kids since. So this, they were removed for processing. He has no idea where they are. I mean, just sitting with that, Grief for a minute. I, I can't even imagine if 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 someone took my kids away and I was powerless to do anything about it. I would, I would be
0: Crazy. beyond
1: a wreck. And you know, it's, it's, it's to say that is an understatement. Mm-hmm. The grief and trauma that, that's happening in that you situation. Want to show that? Yeah. Thanks. So we can disagree about how to fix the structures of immigration. That's a partisan issue. And we all could have different opinions about that. But to me, the, the, the children and the parents and keeping them together, that's a human issue. And I, I think the one thing we can all agree on is that we're all human. And if we say we prize compassion, I think we have to engage with these difficult human issues. How do we touch the humanity at the core of that without going into belief, without going into partisanship? I think that's what Jesus asked us to do, is to touch the humanity at the heart of issues. And if we align ourselves with Einstein on the matter of friendliness, with Jesus on the matter of compassion, we realize really quickly that who we're challenged to love most deeply are the most oppressed in society. I don't always do this well. And I want to. (laughs) I want to kind of have a Jesus type of love at the arc of my curveball, right? Like that's how good I want my curveball to be. Inclusivity is different than diversity. When we we can create diversity really easy, that's an optical illusion, right? We can get a lot of different people that look different in a room and call it diversity. But until we're willing to talk about these issues that keep us divided, we're not going to experience inclusion. And that's, that's the hard part. If we say we want diversity in our class, I think we have to first talk about where are we missing inclusion? Where are we not talking about these deep spiritual issues at the heart of our human growth and transformation? If we can't stretch our minds to think differently, then we can't act differently. (coughs) Garrett Cole doesn't keep pitching the same fastball over and over and over again just hoping it doesn't get hit. With every batter, he adjusts, he makes changes, he shifts, he investigates, he talks to his catcher, he, he assesses the problem and then he throws accordingly, and they, that, to me that metaphor applies to how we can approach these issues of humanity. When asked about baseball, Einstein said it would be easier for a layperson to understand relativity than for him to play baseball. Nevertheless, he had some good advice about how to engage with this ball. He said, if we decide that the universe is an unfriendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to achieve safety and power by creating bigger walls to keep out the unfriendliness, and bigger weapons to destroy all that which is unfriendly. And I believe we're getting to a place where technology is powerful enough that we may either completely isolate or destroy ourselves as well in this process. If we decide that the universe is a friendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to create tools and models for understanding that universe, because power and safety will come through understanding its workings and motives. He's quite prophetic.
0: So um, I I would say, um, and I'm basing what I'm about to say on... um, One of the things I'm basing it on is a a response to reading the Book of Joy, Mm -hmm. which is a a week of recorded conversations between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And uh, they both agreed that what would make a difference in the world is education. And the education would be around who our neighbor is. And I I would add to that that there is not a Republican way to love your neighbor or a Democratic way or a Methodist way or a Baptist way. There is just the love for the neighbor. And, And that transcends partisan politics. That transcends religious orientation. But those things may give us a platform from which we can come and say, this is the unique contribution I would like to make to the conversation. But likely we are not going to do anything unless we raise our awareness. The house is on fire. And we have some issues that are coming to the forefront in our country, having to do with uh, gender equality, for example and having to do with racial inclusivity. I have asked the steering committee of the Ordinary Life class to read this book. And I've asked you to read it, too. I don't know how many of you have. I'm not asking for a show of hands. But if you have read it, it's a very difficult book to read. Michael Dyson is professor of Georgetown in Washington DC. He grew up in the south. He went to Carson Newman of all places. Baptist, I think it's a Baptist school. Tennessee. No. I think so. Is that right? Anybody know? No. I don't it's in know. Tennessee. <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, he's some first-hand experience of that, that sort of thing. And so I would just like to invite you to raise your awareness by reading this book, The Sermon to White America, on what it is like to be black in the United States of America. It's a hard book to read, but I, I encourage you to read it. Um, I I had an incident occur to me once where I felt that somebody had done something that really... Was unfair and unjust to me, and I was really smarting from it. And you know, when somebody, when you feel like somebody's hurt you, one of the things you want to do is hit them back. There
1: you go. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I Are
0: mean, you take the ball and throw it at them or something? Pitchers do that too. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I went to my spiritual director with this and and wanted to hear back after I said that what this unjust was in my life I wanted to hear something like oh bless your heart
1: (laughs) but you know what that really means in the south right? I can't say it in here
0: (laughs) Uh, I know what it meant when Uh my mother would say it Mm -hmm. look at that face bless her heart Mm -hmm. anyway Anyway, what my spiritual director said to me was, um, and it was a person that I felt I'd been wronged by, what my spiritual director said, have you prayed for him? He said, yeah, not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> but it's very Jesus. It's very Buddhist. It's very Hindu. It's very whatever religion you pick. Love your neighbor. Because unless you have some sense of empathy and love, you're not going to get anywhere. And and I was reminded of uh, something that Thomas Keating, who was in the same monk business as Thomas Merton, they were both Trappist monks, both sisterian monks, and uh, the order of strict obedience, it's called. Thomas Merton, he died about a year ago, and and he had a place in Colorado. There's a monastery called Snowmath. And he wrote this prayer, which I would like to offer you. When you read, when you hear some of what we say and you get this, or you read Michael Dyson's book and you get this, or whatever, I want you to hear what Thomas Keating said. And you can use this. Every day. I put it here, too, so you'll have it when the summary comes out. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I welcome everything that comes to me today because I know it's for my healing. I welcome all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire for affection, esteem, approval, and pleasure. I let go of my desire for survival and security. I let go of my desire to change any situation, condition, person, or, or myself. I open to the love and presence of God and God's action within. Amen. Isn't it beautiful? Thank you. Yeah. I love doing this with I love you. It too. So no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step, and I'll see you here next Sunday and at lunch immediately after. Thank you.